Amen. Open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ruth. Ruth, it comes right uh, after Judges, that horrible book (laughs) with such a display of depravity. Uh, Ruth is a glimmer of hope and light in the midst of a very dark time. I'm going to just draw your attention to two verses to begin with, and then we'll come back to this later. Verse 19, so the two of them, that is Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? I can relate to Naomi here. There was a time about 20 years ago that I was a bitter Christian. As far as I can tell, it all began around the time we made an offer to purchase a big farmhouse in the country. We had just spent five years fully renovating every room in our house and realized that we had outgrown it. Five daughters in one bedroom was a signal. It was a signal to look for something roomier. So we began looking for a place outside the city where our seven kids could roam. We didn't care how much work it needed. We just wanted some space. So we sold our fully remodeled home and signed a contract on a large, dilapidated house on seven acres, 10 minutes from church. Since the farmhouse was an income property for its owners, they told us they needed one extra month to find another place to put their investment capital. But in the meantime, however, they said, uh, go ahead and close on your house and move into the soon-to-be-yours homestead. The owners were professing Christians and zealous evangelists who ran a house church, and so there was no reason we didn't think we should take them at their word. Unfortunately, for the next six months, they repeatedly informed us that they had not yet heard the voice of Jesus telling them to close on the house. But they would sure hear him speak soon. We believed and we hoped for the best. Some of our new neighbors began quietly reaching out with careful inquiry. And when we would enthusiastically say, we should be closing any day now, they smiled and spoke a few sympathetic words to us. We were really confused. And we began to get angry, especially when we learned that the previous purchaser-turned-tenant had been strung along for 10 years. Finally, we were forced to hire an attorney to draft a letter insisting that they schedule a closing date 
but the letter was ignored. When we awoke from our bad dream and we realized we had to face reality that we had been swindled and it was time to move on, there was another problem. We were naive and ignorant of the fact that a signed real estate contract can fall through. As a result, we made other financial decisions based upon the package that our credit union had put together for the purchase and the renovation of the dilapidated farmhouse. At this point, all hope was gone. Our ability to purchase another home was slim, but the Lord was watching over us. He knew that we had children to take care of, and he would take care of us. So within seven days, we found a suitable home in a nearby town, closed on it, moved in, and one week later, our eighth child was born. And we were exhausted. (laughs) Physically, mentally, emotionally spent. Once the dust settled, I started to become resentful. But I didn't even realize it. My anger against the sellers was justified. They're crooks. They're liars. And worst of all, they brought Jesus' name into every other sentence. My anger started out righteous, I think, but it degenerated quickly from there. Most of all, I was angry at myself. I'm a total idiot. Not only did I make an unwise decision that would impact our family for years to come, I'm a total failure. I deserve all of this. You are a loser, was the self-talk that I spoke. Deep down, however, and unbeknownst to me, I was also becoming angry at God. I knew from Scripture that being angry at God is sinful and unacceptable. But I didn't understand what was going on in my heart. I never cursed God like Job's wife encouraged him to do, but clearly I was not trusting him with my family or my future or even my feelings. I didn't know how to talk to him about this injustice. And I was disappointed with God that he had not prevented this trouble. My words and actions betrayed that I did not actually believe deep in my heart that God is sovereign and does all things for our good. I could tell others to trust God, who is sovereign. I could preach sermons about the sovereignty of God. But I was really having a hard time believing it myself. I had not yet learned from personal experience that Jerry Bridges is correct when he writes, bitterness arises in our hearts when we do not trust in the sovereign rule of God in our lives. 
And my response to a bad experience only made it worse. Though we had moved to another house, my heart was unable to move on from how badly we had been wronged. I was stuck. The wrong committed against us was all I could think about. The crock pot was plugged in, and my heart was hot all the time. I was ripped, and I'm not talking about my abs. Bitterness was taking root, confirming to me that their sin was greater than mine. The wrong that they did to us was more serious than my failure to trust God. For months, I prayed in anger, and I lacked the self-awareness of what was happening inside me. I blamed the swindlers for deceiving us. I blamed my wife for talking me into moving, even though it was my idea in the first place. I blamed myself for all of our problems and became irritable. Years later, when we were reflecting on our six-month stint in the country, one of our daughters graciously said, I think that was the time that you and mom argued a lot. So to this day, our family's affectionate name for that house is the dump in the country. (laughs) So whenever you hear us or our kids talk about that time at the dump in the country, you can understand a little bit more about all the dynamics that were going on. We can laugh about it now, but it wasn't funny then. Our hurt was deep, the pain was real. But in turning to the scriptures, the Holy Spirit helped me to begin to learn what it means to lament before God, to take these feelings and these thoughts and this pain to him and entrust it to him. He turned my eyes to the abundant grace of Jesus and showed me where I had gone wrong. And only then was I able to find God's way back to the path of childlike trust, forgiveness, and the joy of contentment. My goal today and next week, before we get into our Letters of John series, is to share with you teach you some of the things that the Lord taught me during that time. I want to help you to understand why the Bible warns us against the root of bitterness that springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. I don't pretend to be immune to the subtle attempts of this bitter root to grow back, but I at least know when feelings emerge how to deal with it biblically right away so that it doesn't take hold of me again. I'm still learning to be more aware of the workings of my heart. But I want to spare you some trouble 
by learning from my mistakes and from others that we find on the pages of Scripture. So this morning, there are three levels of awareness that I believe God wants you to think about. First, be aware of what bitterness looks and feels like. See, before the Bible addresses bitterness as a response of our heart, it addresses it as a reality of experience, pain and suffering in this fallen world. There are two words that are most often used in the Bible to refer to bitterness. One is in the Old Testament, one is in the New. The Old Testament uses the Hebrew word mara, which means angry, bitter, chafed, and discontent. It's used literally of water, food, wormwood, physical pain, or the result of ongoing conflict. It is used figuratively of the bitter cry of Esau after he realized his brother Jacob had stolen his birthright or his blessing, his father's blessing. It's used figuratively of a bitter soul and the bitterness of death. The book of Job employs the word to describe the poisonous putrid bile from the gallbladder. The gallbladder itself or the poison of snakes. This predates the New Testament warning to us of how bitterness poisons ourselves and other people around us. The New Testament employs the Greek word pikros from the root meaning to cut or prick. It refers to a sharp, pungent sense of taste or smell. I think of a fresh skunk on the side of the road. James employs the word both literally and figuratively. He uses it literally of water and figuratively of jealousy. As a verb, it means to become bitter or to irritate or help someone else become bitter. It may also describe emotional pain, like the grief of Peter, who, after he denied Jesus, went out and wept bitterly. So together, these words portray bitterness as the opposite of sweetness. That makes sense, right? Think of food. You can think of sweet foods, and you can think of bitter foods. That's the contrast. It's a vivid contrast that we find in the book of Exodus in chapter 15, where it says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So the water that was once bitter has now become sweet, changed by the Lord. What a beautiful picture of what the Lord Jesus can do in our hearts. Take a heart that's bitter and make it sweet. 
There are two major categories of bitterness in the Bible. The first explains the bitter reality of suffering in this world. We go through bitter experiences. We suffer bitter losses. The second category exposes the bitter responses to the wrongs that are committed against us. Today we're going to look at the first, which is the bitterness of hard life experience. Next week we'll look at the second category. We all know, if we've lived long enough, that life in this broken world is sometimes very painful, very hurtful, very messy. It's the way it is. And every one of us endures various kinds of bitter tasting experiences. This brings us to the second level of awareness that God wants you to think about. Secondly, be aware of the reality of bitter tasting affliction. Now let's go back to Ruth chapter 1. Pay attention as I read this chapter. In the days when the judges ruled there, Excuse me. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back. My daughters, go your way, for I too, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. 
return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And such is most chapters in the book of Ruth, ending on a cliffhanger, drawing you into the next chapter. But in the book of Ruth, we meet this woman named Naomi. She experiences a great deal of pain and loss, bitter tasting experiences. Her husband moves their family to Moab, where he then dies. So in, in a matter of being tested by the Lord in a time of famine, he leaves, he forsakes the land of promise and goes into the land of the enemies. Moab, of all places. And while in that foreign land, after the father dies, the sons marry Moabite women, and then both of them die. So over a period of about a decade, Naomi becomes a widow and the single mother of two pagan daughters-in-law. standing in the cemetery in front of three graves. The bitterness of her suffering is so great that it alters her appearance. So when she returns to Bethlehem, the women say, is this Naomi? Whose name means pleasant. Is this the same pleasant woman? But she corrects them. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for God has been bitterly working against me. Now, how did Naomi get to this point, we might ask? Well, before you rush to harsh judgment, try to put yourself in her shoes. She's left the land of promise, following her husband's leadership into Moab. God, I believe, is not pleased with this decision to leave the promised land and to go to a place of idolatry, but he still took out his good 
sovereign big purpose, even with all these sub-purposes going on. The book opens with this uh, declaration that it's in the period of the judges that all of this takes place. Well, the period of the judges is a time of political oppression and utter chaos. The days when the judges ruled were days when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was political and spiritual anarchy. It was a time of spiritual apostasy as God's people adopted the worship and the practices of the pagan Canaanites whom the previous generation had failed to utterly destroy as God had commanded them. And so this family's trial begins in this time period when there is a famine in the land. This is a little indicator to us of who's in charge of the big plan over all of this because numerous scriptures testify that God is the one who controls the weather. We don't. We don't control the weather. And we can approve billions and billions and billions of dollars to try to change the atmosphere, to change the weather, but God is sovereign over the weather. Over and over we see that in Scripture. So considering this, we rightly believe that God was ultimately arranging the weather conditions which caused the famine which brought about the events of the book of Ruth. So their suffering is not an accident. Yes, there's foolishness involved along the way. Yes, there is the freedom of man's will to make stupid choices or to make wise choices. But over it all is this reigning purpose of a good and wise God. All of this is just a a sub-story to the big story that through Ruth, this young Moabite idolater becomes a true believer in Jehovah, and through her, God initiates the line of David, which ultimately will become the line of Jesus. See, God's up to something here. Our Savior would come out of this dark time, ultimately. So there's the famine. So Elimelech moves his family 50 miles east to the other side of the Dead Sea. After he dies, his sons marry. They die. And Naomi is left with two daughters-in-law, both of whom are pagans. Moabites were descendants of one of the incestuous 
unions of Abraham's nephew, Lot, according to Genesis 19, who then became the enemies of Israel and corrupted them with their abominations. And therefore, God's law forbade Moabites from even entering God's assembly. The marrying of these Moabite women was unwise due to the tendency of heathen wives to lead men of Israel into idolatry. We see that most obviously, of course, in the life of King Solomon. So knowing all this, we can conclude that the family's move to Moab was not a good one, but as always, God has a bigger purpose, a bigger plan. Something beautiful is being worked on behind the scenes that no one in this family can see. So Naomi reverses direction, the direction her husband had taken, and she turns back on the graves of her loved ones, and she heads home. She makes a clean break from Moab and heads back to Bethlehem. And on the way, she tells her daughters-in-law to return to their people, and then she pronounces a blessing of God's kindness upon them. So you can see, though Naomi's faith is struggling, it's still there. She still knows, even if God has dealt bitterly with her, and even though God is working against her, the same God will be kind to her daughters-in-law. One daughter returns to her mother in Moab. The other one stays with Naomi. And this is the blessing of this relationship that begins then between Naomi and Ruth. See, Naomi's faith in the goodness and kindness of God toward herself was waning, but she still understood a basic truth about God. And she was able to then tell others that he would bless them. There's a lesson there for us. Um, Knowing this truth and actually resting in it in your heart don't always coincide equally. There are times in which we know these things about God and yet our heart in the midst of bitter experiences struggles to really embrace it. And we can doubt him But he's so good, he's so patient, he's so tender toward us, even in those times. Well, that then brings us to the third level of awareness that God wants you to think about. Be aware of how bitterness operates in your heart. This has been a long, long learned lesson for me, and as I've said, I'm not fully there yet. Number one, bitterness skews your view of yourself. Look at verse 20. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Don't call me pleasant. (laughs) Don't call me sweetness. 
which is what Naomi means, call me angry, call me bitter, call me resentful, call me discontent. Call me that word, you know, you remember from the wilderness wanderings and bitter water and exodus. What am I getting at here? What I'm getting at is this. Bitterness is now more than Naomi's experience. It now defines her. Bitter, with an uppercase B, is her new name. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter because that's who I am. That's really important for us because sometimes when bitter tasting affliction overtakes us, it is tempting to let our suffering now be what defines us. Naomi took her eyes off of the beautiful truth that she was a beloved one of Jehovah whom God made a covenant with. And she now decided what defined her was not that relationship that she had with God, but it was her suffering. Have you ever been tempted to think that way? That the pain that you're going through, that's what defines you. That's who you are now, but it's not who you are. It's not who you are. In Christ, you are a beloved child of God, and your relationship with him is what defines who you are, not your suffering. The sweet and pleasant woman loved by Jehovah is now the bitter one of Bethlehem because she had a skewed view of herself. Secondly, bitterness causes you to forget God's goodness. We saw in verse 13 how she said to her daughters-in-law that the hand of the Lord is against me. But now see in verse 21, well, 20 actually, sorry, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So now the only thing about God that Naomi can see is the pain that he has brought into her life. Her, her view of God has become extremely narrow. She's lost this beautiful, wide-angle view of God and his goodness and kindness and purpose in all things. And now she can only see this God has brought such horrible pain into my life. God is only against me, she says. My suffering defines me defines me so much, I'm going to change my name to bitter. Forgetting who God is. Number three, bitterness exaggerates your suffering 
thus blinding you from seeing God's blessings. This is what it did for me, did to me. All I could see was the pain, the wrong, failing to realize the abundance of blessings that were all around me. Naomi interpreted her suffering as proof that God was against her. That's a wrong thing to do, okay? There are numerous scriptures that make this clear. The book of Job, John chapter 9, 2 Corinthians 12. If you interpret your relationship with God based upon your experience, you will go wrong all of the time because all you will see is your suffering. You won't see God and his goodness and his kindness. And she says in verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. She failed to see the blessing that was standing right next to her in Ruth. I went to Moab with a husband and two sons. I've come back alone. She wasn't alone. She had Ruth. And so this bitter experience resulted in a bitter spirit because she failed to interpret her suffering biblically. She failed to look at her loss through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of a good and kind God who, though he allows many, many painful things in our lives, it is for the purpose of demonstrating even more to us how much he loves us and how much he wants us to rest in him. I mean, neither of these women knew what God was up to behind the scenes. They couldn't see. But Naomi's bitterness prevented her from being able to trust in God's promises. But you know what I think is so beautiful here? Is that God doesn't come down hard on Naomi. He shows his tenderness to her in giving her Ruth and patiently showing her where her heart has taken her. She believed she had come back empty, but Ruth was right there by her side, and Ruth was going to end up being the great-grandmother of David, who would then be the father of Jesus in his lineage. See, bitterness produces cataracts over the eyes of your heart, which prevents you from seeing the richness of God's blessings all around you. It blinds our eyes to the good that God is accomplishing in our trials. And so we see Ruth, this brand new believer in Jehovah, she has such a tenderness of heart toward her mother-in-law and she commits to taking care of her 
her. And like Abraham of old, Ruth leaves her idolatrous past and follows the true God. As a result, at the end of the book, we learn that Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David, through whom was born our Savior. So the suffering of this one family becomes the doorway through which the redemption of God is put on display for the whole world through the gospel. This is the mystery of God's providence, working in and around and behind and through and over and under all of the things we experience, the bitter experiences we have in this life. He is so good, so gracious. Life is filled with bitter-tasting experiences, but pain and loss don't have to define us. They don't have to turn our hearts bitter. We don't have to respond like Naomi, who resisted God because his plan was different than hers. Life didn't turn out the way she had wanted it to turn out. And we can all look at our lives and say, yeah, we can see that, every one of us. And yet if we stay there, oh, how Satan gets the advantage in our lives because then we don't see how much infinitely better our lives are now because we know Jesus, right? So like Ruth, we can be humble, respond with that childlike faith. Our response to life's turnarounds will make us bitter or make us better. The choice choice is ours. I've had to learn that. I'm still learning it. That's the choice. So let me leave you with one takeaway that I hope encapsulates everything we've thought about this morning. A bitter experience may produce a bitter spirit. Doesn't have to, but it may. When suffering is not interpreted and responded to biblically. We have to look through the lens of God's word at our suffering, and then we have to say, Lord, how do you want me to respond in this situation to please you, to glorify the Lord Jesus? Father, thank you for including raw, honest pictures of humanity in your word. People that we can relate to. We can relate to the pain, the suffering of Naomi and even Ruth and her sister-in-law. They experienced life in this broken world. But oh, what a beautiful hope we see that you are the good, wise, kind, 
sovereign God who is working providentially in our lives. We don't understand. We so often do not understand. But we know that you are fully trustworthy and your promises are firm. So help us, Father, to grow in our trust of you. In Jesus' name, amen.